Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the forests of eastern Canada and our relationships to them. We share delight in the wonders of forest ecosystems, talk about forestry, conservation, and many interconnected issues, and we are on the lookout to discover sustainable, creative, traditional, and respectful ways of relating to the forest. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to hear opinions, perspectives, and ideas from many different people. Nothing presented here is intended as the final word. Each will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. I believe in the importance of finding shared ground where as humans we can live well and meet our needs while contributing to thriving forests and the well-being of all the incredible life we share this planet with. I also want to highlight and celebrate the wonder of our surroundings. Just before black fly season, I met with a local lichen expert who showed me around an area of forest on the south shore of Manamkiak Lake near Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. This area, as well as where I produced this episode, is located in Mi'kmaq, the unceded and ancestral territory of the Mi'kmaq people. Former librarian Frances Anderson began studying lichens in 2000. Since then, she has explored thousands of kilometers of backwoods in Nova Scotia, discovered lichen species new to the province and to the Maritimes, written and co-authored over a dozen papers on lichens, and co-authored a field guide designed to bring sometimes mysterious lichens to the general public. It's called Common Lichens of Northeastern North America. Frances is a research associate at the Nova Scotia Museum. That morning in the forest was filled with mystery and amazement as my eyes were opened to the wonders of lichen all around us. The forest is magical and different when one doesn't go very far or very fast and is looking at everything through a hand lens. Frances explains what lichens are, how they reproduce, and what roles they have within the ecosystem. She shared lots of interesting things about lichens in general, and a little bit about the at-risk species as well. With a hand lens, I was even able to observe the at-risk wrinkled shingle lichen. Hello. Good morning. Do you have any trouble finding it? No, not at all. The fungi that, the fungal species that make up lichens are really obligate. They, they, they aren't species that can exist on their own, so they have to become a lichen in order to continue to exist. Ah, so otherwise, like, yeah, if they're fungi that can exist on their own, they would probably just do that? Yes. Ah. Yeah. So what happens is the, the algal partners, many of them, are able to exist as free-living algae. And they're found in minute quantities all over the place. Some of them are visible to the naked eye and some aren't particularly. But the fungi that's making up this lichen, that fungus can't exist on its own. It has to have an algal partner in order for it to continue. So every time you see a lichen, it means that the fungal part of it could not exist alone. That's right. Right here, there's an amazing variety of lichens. And some of the lichens that you see on rocks right around in here don't normally grow on rocks and oh. I'm not sure why that has happened oh. <clears throat> this is interesting um, the, the lungwort the lo- Loberia pulmonaria 
has a green algal component, but in on the underside there are these little pockets where it holds cyanobacteria. So it's actually got two algal partners. Huh. So um, this is it. most most of them don't, but this one this one does. What's this? So just on this rock here, from my untrained eyes, it looks like there's at least, what, five or more? Uh, right on this rock you have, well, these are folios lichens, you know, the ones that have an upper and lower surface. Like, right, you know? yeah. And then there are all these crusts that make up the patterns and the colors all over the rock. Yeah. And those are really, those are really the pioneers. Those are the ones that start out when there's nothing else to hold on to but the rock surface. Um, and they they attach themselves underneath with with little minute fungal hairs that go into the pores of the rock. So if you think about how, how big a pore of a rock might be, <laughs> um, those hairs go in there, and they fasten on like that. And they they just they're the beginning. They start providing texture for other things to to land on it, little pockets of soil or little seeds or spores for other things, and so they, they, they're the beginnings of places for um, mosses and other plants to start attaching themselves to rocks. So they're kind of the pioneers. What they do as well is their little fungal hairs going down into the rock have, um, can help the rock weather. Over time, this rock will get broken down by the fact that it's got lichens on it. Right, and otherwise it wouldn't, well, I guess it would weather. It would weather, but... yeah, eventually, but this speeds hmm. up the process in geological time, not in actual our time. Anyway. Yeah, when is... I was thinking, oh, there's all these different species, I, I forgot about the, um, I was only noticing the folios ones. Right. I said that, and then of course right. there's uh, so many other. And then there are little... these little fruticose ones, these little, these little ones that stand up. Oh, yes. So the folios ones have an upper and lower surface, and the fruticose ones don't they have a their their whole outside is kind of in a cylinder full the fruticose ones are are things like the beard lichens and all these cladonias most of the things that grow on the soil that you would notice are cladonias and they're all fruticose anyway this is a this is an interesting location and when um because there are all these different species right close to a road mm -hmm. Not a very heavily traveled road, as you can see, or at least not at the moment. Um, so when we get into the woods, it gets even more interesting. Yeah, we've walked about 20 steps so yeah, far. Right. <laughs> this is a, a nice woods because it's, um, it's quite mixed. There's um, poplar and red maple and several species of conifers this side of the road is considered mature forest and a lot of lichens really like that not all of them require it but quite a few of them do mm. a lot of the species at risk lichens seem to prefer um, red maple and poplar on on this on the Atlantic side of the province I'm not sure exactly why that might be um, and that's interesting too that lichens in different parts of the province might prefer different trees or you might find them more likely on well, different trees. Well, I mean there's a lot more red oak in certain parts of Annapolis County for instance than there is in Lunenburg County. 
And so if you get the right humidity conditions and the right light conditions, um, it seems that in some cases the red oak is the preferred substrate. Now, we always have thought, there's so much we still don't know about lichens, and especially the species at risk. We always thought that they preferred the poplar and maple because the bark was more basic, you know, less less acidic. Oh. But I would have thought that oak would have a moderately acidic bark. So it's interesting to me that those that seems to be the preferred substrate up through Annapolis and into Digby. Hmm. Yeah, so they might choose maple if they couldn't find any oak. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. I mean, used to be thought that a lichen was a fungus and an alga, just one. And now we know that there are sometimes two. But then recently somebody discovered that there's a third component in most lichens, not in all so far, um, which is uh, a kind of yeast. Lichens have their own chemical compounds. There are probably well, more than 500 chemical compounds that exist in lichens that don't exist anywhere else. And it's never been really clear how they create those, but it's thought now that maybe that's the function of that third partner. Wow. Is to, is to develop these chemical compounds. And here you can see, these are all these reindeer lichens. Uh-huh. And you can see how the rock is gradually disappearing underneath vegetation. Yeah. It starts out with these crustose lichens. And then some of the foliose ones attach. And then other things come along, like the mosses and seeds from the trees. And gradually it'll all fill in. This is our, uh, our national lichen. The reindeer lichen. The rain, oh. It's a reindeer lichen. There are two, three species of reindeer lichen right in this little area. They're, they're slightly different colors and slightly different shapes. But their chemical components are different. And so the col their color is affected by some of those compounds I was saying that okay. lichens only ha have. Yeah. Um, and what makes this slightly yellow is the presence of usnic acid. And usnic acid is named after the beard lichens uh -huh. because they're, they have high complement of the usnic acid. And it's a yellow-green. And it'll, uh -huh. whenever you see a lichen that's yellow-green, chances are it's got a heavy concentration of usnic acid. Okay. Huh. Now, usnic acid is really interesting because it's got um, microbial um, capabilities. It's, it can be used as an antibiotic. And... Pharmaceutical companies are doing a lot of work trying to um, create in the lab, recreate some of the compounds that they found in lichens, and, and this is, is one of them. Anyway, this, this one, which is our national lichen, also has that yellow color to it, but its branching pattern is different, and it makes little heads like, like cauliflowers do. Right. So it's got these little clumps, and that one doesn't. Uh, I see. Yes, I see. You that see, difference. so there's a, quite okay. a difference in shape. So, so this specific one is our national lichen. Yep, or? this okay. specific one, Cladonia stellaris. It's oh, what is that? Star-tipped reindeer lichen. Hmm. I can never remember the common names. Uh -huh. um, and the reason it, it it got voted on by people who know about lichens all across the country, 
and this one was chosen because it occurs in every province and it's easily recognizable mm. because of its little clumping. In the overstory re- partial overstory removal cut block, yeah. there are a few open rock faces that were uh, used to be open rock faces like this, but right now they're just covered with these cl- um, reindeer lichens. It's really magical to yeah, come it is. into this opening that's all yeah. lichen. Yep, yeah, it yeah. is. It's wonderful. Unfortunately, these are so common that they don't have any, you know, they don't have any power. <laughs> no, that's too bad. Okay, some context here. Francis was referring to one of the areas of land that was recently proposed to be logged on the north side of Menamkiak Lake, which is within the Petite Riviere watershed and supplies drinking water for nearby communities, including Bridgewater. When she says these lichen don't have any power, she is referring to the fact that however important to the ecosystem so-called common lichens are, the presence of them won't stop an area from being clear-cut. On the other hand, finding a species at risk lichen will help protect a forest at least a little bit because buffers are required around them. Regarding the proposed cutting to the north side of Menamkiak Lake, there was a huge public outcry to logging there, and just recently, DNRR has said that they won't be allowing that cut. Here is what Stephen Stewart of the DNRR said. I'm quoting. The primary concern is potential impact to the lakes where the endangered Atlantic whitefish are located, due to road construction needed to access the proposed harvest area. The department has also confirmed the presence of rare lichens in one of the proposed harvest plan after it was reported through the public comment process. This announcement was a relief to many. The next step to ensure its long-term and permanent protection is to have all the crown lands in the watershed designated a wilderness area. This would still allow multiple uses by people, including hiking and hunting, but would protect the forest from harm. Nina Newington said it nicely. I'm going to take a snippet from episode two. This is what Nina said about wilderness areas. So, you know, when you're talking about like a positive vision of protecting an area as a wilderness area, it's not about taking it away from people. It's about looking after what's here, but not letting it get destroyed. If you would like to follow what is happening or get involved with the protection of the lands in Lake Menamkiak area and the potential for it to become designated as a wilderness area, there's a Facebook page you can find called Bridgewater Watershed Protection Alliance. Now, back to the woods, where we meet another yellow-green lichen, which fascinated me because it reminded me of walks on the beach. And here's another slightly different shaped one. But you see, it still has that yellow. It's got usnic acid in. This is a cladonia, and this one is called fishnet cladonia because its stems are all perforated, just like a fishnet. Oh, neat. It's actually reminding me a lot of a, a, a common seaweed I see at the beach. Yes, it, it, well, they're algae. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's algae in that. Yes, they're very similar. There, there are a lot of similarities between seaweed and, and uh, lichens visually. Right, okay, so the lichens are sort of... Um... Well, lichens have algae in them, but yeah. their main, sh- main shape is fungal. But the algae in that case might be affecting the shape of the seaweed? That might be the similarity between those? I don't know. It's I don't so know the answer to that. It is, it? really. So it's all lichen, interwoven. Lichen are a mix of those three components that you mentioned, yeah. and then so because of that, they're very similar to some fungi, and they also can be similar to seaweed. Right. 
So look at this lovely oh, Cladonia beautiful. garden. I mean, I just think this is magical. And then they've got all the beard lichens here that are hanging off the trees. Now, beard lichens are supposedly really sensitive to the atmosphere. Um, they, they don't like to grow if there's pollution. Um, they also need a lot of light, but they need moisture. And one of the reasons Nova Scotia has so many beard lichens, and you see it especially along the Atlantic coast, mm -hmm. is because of the, the high humidity content. Uh -huh. And the air is reasonably clear. I, I was told when I first started studying lichens that Nova Scotia was kind of the tailpipe of the nation, nation that um, pollutants from central Canada and from up the eastern seaboard all kind of came our way. But uh, uh, I've had trouble with that concept because we have such an amazingly rich and varied lichen flora mm. and we have such a high concentration of a lot of non-pollution tolerant lichens. Mm -hmm. Because of all those compounds that I was talking about, um, some lichens can withstand polluted air and some actually thrive on it and others are killed off by it. So. Mm lichenologists have developed a kind of chart of which lichens are pollution tolerant and which aren't. So lichens can be used for air pollution monitoring mm. and they can do that in um, in sites that are, you know, like Kedgy, that are far from anywhere, uh, any direct source of pollution. So they can kind of measure based on the presence and absence in cer and the development or lack of development of, s of certain species because they already know which ones can tolerate which compounds. I love this. I think it's wonderful. It is really During my morning walk with Frances, so she took me to a tree where she had discovered one of the species at risk lichens. This is the wrinkled shingle lichen, or Panaria lurida. And it's all over this tree. It goes all the way up this poplar. This has the distinct wrinkles. I just love how it's got this little moss and something else happening oh, there. Oh yes, there are three little lichens growing in that little lump. That's like a inch inch square right. at most yep. with some moss in there as well. Yep. <laughs> so neat. And so this as is growing see. on a, a dead poplar. A piece of, yes, but you know, as long as the light and moisture changes, um, because the lichen isn't getting any nutrients from the bark, because it doesn't have any mechanisms for taking nutrients up through it, mm -hmm. so as long as it's light and moisture stay the same, it doesn't really matter to the lichen whether its bark is dead or alive. Uh -huh. Well, we could go sit on that trunk down there. Sure. As we got closer to the lake, the winds became stronger, and Francis and I decided to find a sheltered place to sit to continue our conversation. I asked her about a specific time when she was amazed by a particular lichen. Yes, I think my the very first time I found um, the the blue felt lichen, our provincial lichen, Pectenia plumbia. It was a, a day when I was. Um, just walking through Indian Path Common, actually, and it had rained, so things were kind of um, moist, and I was looking at a tree uh, in a little stream, and this deep, brilliant blue 
uh, lichen showed up on the on the trunk of a maple tree, and its color just fascinated me. It was it was just gorgeous. Now, when it's dry, that particular lichen is just kind of gray and um, kind of thick and not particularly attractive. But when it's blue, when it's wet, it it turns this wonderful blue, and it's surrounded by a mat of of fungal hairs that look kind of black and not very interesting when it's dry but when it's wet they become blue as well so there was this mass of blue on the trunk which is an unusual color to see in the woods you don't often see blue you see greens and browns and beige and white and, and yellows but very seldom blue Anyway, so that was probably the most exciting time. <laughs> what time of day was it or what season? Oh, it, it would have been, it doesn't matter about the season. Lichens are the same all year round. <laughs> it would have been sometime after the leaves had fallen. One of the, the things that's really nifty about lichens is that the best time to look for them is when everything else is asleep. Ah, oh, that is nice, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and they don't, they don't change. They don't look any different, not like vascular plants or like flowers. Um, they just they look the same all year round. You can just see them better when everything else is gone. So you were just saying they don't change through the, throughout the seasons, but they have a really, they change through, daily? They have their ways of... Well, yes. I mean, if you consider uh, trees that lose their leaves, um, they develop their leaves in the spring and they photosynthesize all of that time and then the leaves fall off and they store up all the, the energy that they need. And they get food and energy from the soil that they're growing in. But lichens don't do that. Lichens are just sort of attached to things. And they get their nutrition from uh, being wetted by rain and fog and condensation and dew. And then they photosynthesize in the light. And so that's when they do their growing. Lichens has its algal partner all year round. They feed and grow according to their wetting and drying cycles. Uh-huh. Are they able to do more photosynthesizing in the winter, though, because they're not being shaded? Some are, and some of the really sensitive lichens, like a lot of our species at risk lichens, um, grow on deciduous trees, and they grow in areas where there's shade for them in the summer when the sun is at its strongest, because they can't take the desiccation. Oh, I see. Yeah. So they slow down their processes. And one of the things that lichens can do is that they can go into a sort of static state. Um, It's called cryptobiosis. But, you know, they can... The lichens that grow out on on exposed rocks Mm -hmm. in the broad sun, and they're dry forever and ever, you know, they only need a little bit of moisture in order to do their photosynthesizing. But when they're dry... They're just not doing anything. They're just waiting for some moisture to come along so that they can feed themselves and grow. Ah. And can they wait indefinitely? Well, they can, some species can. It's really variable from species to species because the ones that grow in swampy areas um, and wet areas, like our, a lot of our species at risk ones, have to have lots of moisture. But those that grow out on exposed rock surfaces don't need much moisture and they they can withstand um, being without it for quite a long time. Lichens grow in all kinds of really extreme habitats. Um, the ones that grow in the Arctic, for instance, I mean, they don't have any tree cover. They, they tend to grow on rocks and soil and 
um, they can withstand the exposure. But ro- lichens grow on basically anything that stands still long enough that has the right light and moisture requirements that that species has. Mm-hmm. So they grow in deserts, and they grow in the Arctic, they grow in tropical rainforests, and of course they grow here in Nova Scotia where everything is really nice and moist. Right, <laughs> yes, yes. And we have, we have a huge abundance of lichens in this region, too. We, we do. We have a wide range of species. We have, you know, a, probably 900 or so species of lichens in the province. We don't know that for sure because the smaller crustose ones um, and the ones that grow on soil and on rocks haven't been studied as much as the tree lichens. But um, we have a, a wide range of species for a wide range of habitats. Well, maybe an interesting thing to hear you speak about would be um, some of the relationships that lichens have with other creatures in their ecosystem. Okay. Um, well, the most obvious ones are the, the things that the big leafy lichens, the folios lichens have, because they take up a lot of, uh, or a larger amount of space, and a lot of them grow on um, trees. So what they do is they provide shelter and food for a wide range of insects, tiny little insects, mites and kalimbalins and, and things that are really just tiny, but rely on some of them for, for places to live. And also um, some of those rely on the lichens for food. And they kind of start at the bottom of the food chain. Um, a lot of birds will peck among lichens to get some of the insects that are hiding in between them. And there are also insects that have kind of uh, developed a sort of camouflage because they look a whole lot like lichens growing on a tree, mm-hmm. and that keeps them safe from their predators. Uh-huh. They also get used a lot in birds' nests. Um, bir- the, the hanging lichens, the, the fruticose beard lichens, the usneas and the bryorias, the brown ones and the, and the yellow-green ones, um, they get wound into birds' nests quite uh, quite frequently, hmm. as do some of the grayish sort of leafy ones that you see growing on trees. Uh, I have people have brought me birds' nests that have four or five lichen species growing in, uh, you know, used in construction. And and might the lichen still be growing at that point? Well, it, it depends. It depends on how much their light exposure and their water exposure has changed for them. Mm. Um, some of them are really sensitive to that, and some of them aren't. So I think they probably are still viable. Whether they actually grow, I'd be really surprised. I don't know. That's a oh. good question. So, so maybe at, at least after the bird was finished with the nest, they might end, end up finding their way back and and growing again in another place? They might. Um, Lichens have several reproductive strategies, and and if the strategy for reproduction um, of a lichen that's been used in a nest uh, is still functional when the nest is not used anymore, then sure they could reproduce. That's really neat to think yeah, about. I hadn't actually thought about that part, yeah. They spend part of their life as, um, as, a, as a home just for a birds. lichen and then yeah. <laughs> birds, yeah. Uh. What is it that led you to pursue uh, the study of lichens? Well, Nova Scotia, I mean, there are only a very few parts of Nova Scotia where lichens aren't pretty obvious. Again, mostly the tree lichens. Um, and at the time, there was no field guide to them. They're, I mean, they're, they're very difficult 
to put into a field guide, but I thought, well, that's something I might like to do, is to come up with a field guide that people could use just to figure out what some of the common species are. So I pursued that, and just about the same time, um, a great big eight-pound book called Lichens of North America, put out by Erwin Brodo from the Canadian Museum of Nature, came out, and I spent the first winter that it was available bringing pieces of lichens home and trying to match them up to the photographs <laughs> in the book, yeah. which was very difficult um, because it covered all of North America and there were a whole lot of species that don't grow here. Right. Yeah, you know, it's hard to ignore them if you live here because they're just everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, how do you think that harvesting in this forest or a forest like it would affect the lichen population? Well, all of the lichens that are growing here because of its n wonderful moisture, um, the particular forest we're in right now has all these rock ridges with, with low, low wet areas in between. And even if they didn't harvest those, harvesting around them will change how much moisture stays in those moist areas right now because they're more exposed to wind and to light. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the lichens that are in here, because it's moist, would disappear. I see. Along with anything that happens to be growing on a tree that gets harvested. Right. But that's always the case. So it's been in the news quite a lot lately that there's a few different parcels on the um, to the north of the lake that had had the logging company propose to cut in them. But now we're on the south side, <laughs> and what's happening with this part of the Crownland Forest? Well, there's a small, a relatively small parcel of Crownland on the on the south shore of Lake Manamkiak that was already allocated to the forestry companies for harvest several years ago. I think it was two or three years ago that this portion, this parcel that we've been on was uh, was set for harvest. A year or so ago when I was out here, uh, suddenly there was some flagging tape up and that alerted me that they were planning to harvest. Whatever interest there has been in protecting the Bridgewater watershed or and the crown land that flanks the lake um, would include this, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this piece that we're on right now will not be harvested because it was promised and a contract, I presume, signed a few years ago mm. to harvest this portion of it. So if all the crown land is protected somehow, if, if there's no harvesting on crown land around Lam Lake Manamkiak, then where we are right now will be saved. Otherwise it's still open to be harvested. So just recently, the government made an announcement that the the Leahy report would be more fully implemented, I, I understand, than before. And I guess we'll see what the details will be of that. But I guess under those rules, they're still allowed to, if they want, clear-cut a whole area if it's 10 if, hectares or less? Yes. Which is a pretty good chunk, unfortunately. And that would include this entire peninsula that we're sitting in now. Wow. 
except for the the areas around the species at risk lichens the hundred meter buffer around those that would be excluded but everything else would go so this particular piece is is especially vulnerable there is more crown land on the other side of the camperdown road that would um, is more than 10 hectares so it would have to be harvested selectively according to whatever regulations come in as of June 1st. This side, however, because it's less than 10 hectares, could be easily clear-cut. Right. There's been quite a lot of public outcry with the logging in this watershed for um, different reasons, but one of the main ones is because of the critically endangered Atlantic whitefish. Yes. And so cutting on this side of the lake would still be of concern for for that reason, obviously. And some organizations are trying to propose a wilderness area, which would mean the crown land around here is, is protected in perpetuity. Yes. Yes, I think the proposal is um, to protect any crown land that borders the lake to make it a wilderness area. But I think the broader proposal would include the Petite River watershed which would include the crown land that's on the opposite side of the road away from the lake. Because, of course, that does affect the watershed. Right, yeah. So, but what's unknown at present, well, it, a whole bunch of it's unknown. We don't know yes. whether it will become a wilderness area. No, but don't. Uh, but, I, but also, if this has already been approved for cutting well before the new rules came in, even if they said yes, a big part of this area should be wilderness area. This particular parcel and the one across the road might not be included even then, you're thinking? Well, it's possible that the wilderness area uh, would include this particular parcel, but because this could be clear-cut <laughs> at any time, um, it might happen quickly, particularly if the forestry companies are feeling pressured to harvest any smaller plots before the new regulations come in. So I, I feel like this particular spot is in a greater risk, actually. I really hope that this forest is not in danger and that a wilderness area will be designated in time. But let's hear about Francis's field guide now. So, yeah, so you obviously wrote this guide mm. to lichens in yes. Nova Scotia with Troy McMillan. McMullen, yes, and it isn't actually just Nova Scotia. All the, almost all the photographs were taken in Nova Scotia, and our choice of species... Um, was based on what we see as common, but also what seems to be common in New England. We called it Guide to Common Lichens of Northeastern North America. So that's a, a great resource for, for folks living in this whole region. Yes. And, and I've been enjoying um, learning, starting to learn more about lichens through that book. Oh, good. And I'm wondering what else you might suggest um, for people who want to, to start to learn more about lichens. What... Ooh. what they would start to do or how they would go about their woods walks differently or <laughs> anything mm. you can think of? Um, the only place that I know that consistently holds courses in lichen identification is a place in Maine. Oh, really? Yeah, it's called Eagle Hill. Uh, it's the Humboldt Field Research Institute, and they put on lichen, week-long lichen courses as well as a wide, week-long, wide range of subject matter relating to natural history, hmm. and um, 
it's a residential place, so you go and you stay there for the whole week, and you spend your entire week learning about whatever it is you went there to learn about. And it's great fun and very instructive. And they do have some general lichen courses, but at the moment there isn't any place in Nova Scotia that you can go and take a, a, a course or get instruction on how to look at lichens and how to understand about them and what distinguishes one species from another. I mean, lichens are fairly small, despite the fact that they cover a, a, a lot of um, surface area on a, any given substrate. The, th the things that make one species different from another are um, pretty minute. And so you have to learn, if you're really interested in distinguishing species from each other, um, you need to learn about those features, and you need to look at them with a hand lens and hopefully even a microscope, because sometimes you need a microscope to tell one species from another. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So you wouldn't necessarily know when you're out in the field even all the time. You would have to take it absolutely, home and do that's further Absolutely true, yes. And some of the species at risk have very similar look-alikes. Hmm. In some cases, just because of the environment that they happen to be in or their particular exposure, they can look very similar. And you have to look, for instance, at spores, which are absolutely minuscule and require a compound microscope <laughs> and uh, in order to tell them apart. Right. Sometimes chemical testing is, is necessary. Um, lichens, all the compounds that lichens have in them, some of them react uh, with different colors ah. according to a certain chemical applied to them. That amazes me that anyone ever discovered that they were different in the first place. Well, I know it is. And, and it's only really been since the 50s that people realized that the chemical differences were such that, that they could use chemistry to to um, tell species from one another. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's obviously a lot to lichen identification. And then I'm also thinking of just how uh, fantastical it is to walk through the woods when you just start paying attention to lichens more, regardless of whether you have any idea what they are. That's right. You can <laughs> still very just, true, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you stop to look at mo many trees, um, you'll see various shades of gray and white and if you look really closely at them with a hand lens, you'll see that you can almost not see the bark. They're just covered with crustose lichens. That's particularly true of, of young smooth-barked um, saplings and shrubs. Hmm. Uh, a lot of them just have this patterning all over them. And if you're careful and you look closely, you can see that they're, you don't see the bark at all. It's just lichens. Wow, yeah. It's so much fun to just even have a hand lens with you all I the know. time. And you don't have to go very far when you're looking at things That's in such right. a scale. That's right. Yeah, it looks like a different world. It, it is a different world. It is a different world, <laughs> yes. yeah. Yeah, I guess so. We, and yeah. we tend to notice the big leafy ones like lungworts, you know, the like Loberia pulmonaria, which is the lungwort. Um, but really, if you stop and look at almost anything growing... Uh, in the woods, you'll you'll find a lichen pretty close by. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, neat. Um, while we were walking uh, out to the point there at the lake, and it got quite windy, so I turned the recorder off, but uh, you were telling me uh, about that special species you found. I was just wondering if oh, you could share that. Oh, yes. Well, um, I had come to this particular location a couple of times with a couple of lichen classes that were learning about lichens, and one day, a couple of summers ago now, when um, 
when the drought was really strong in this area, uh, I came out with somebody else and we were wandering along the shore and I got out to a rock that would normally be surrounded by water and I noticed the lichen that I didn't recognize. So I, I took a little bit of it home. It was growing on this, on the kind of almost the upper surface, but just slightly off to the side. And it turned out to be a lichen that has never been recorded from the Maritimes. And it's uh, a major range extension for this particular lichen, uh, which is really known um, in Maine only from one place on Mount Katahdin. And then all of the other locations for it are either further uh, south or further west. So this is this particular species, which is called Parmelia fraudans. Um, I don't think it has a vernacular name. Um, just has never been found here. There were reports of it from Newfoundland, but it turns out that those particular species are not it. Um, somebody examined the species that was claimed to be that, and it wasn't. So, so, so as far as you know, or you would probably know, but you're the th this one lichen on that one rock in this one lake, Manamkiak Lake in Nova Scotia, is the only place it's been found in Nova Scotia in in the Maritimes in the whole Maritimes. Yes, and the, actually the Atlantic provinces, Newfoundland, PEI, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. It's not been reported from any of those. Yeah, so just to think, well, I guess we were saying earlier, you just never know what you might find you where. You just never know. No, you don't. <laughs> there are some you can pretty much expect to find, but we're always finding new things. Uh-huh. Um, I was also remembering the uh, there have been quite a few, they're called bioblitzes happening, right? Yes, yes. Which is, uh, I guess, how would we just, um, like a citizen collaborative um, gathering where um, citizen scientists with I guess leadership from it, from someone who knows try to find a specific species in a given area over a certain amount of time. Yeah. Um, so, I've been seeing bioblitzes. I guess particularly in forests that are slated for for logging, where people are trying to protect them, and they've um, identified some species at risk that then they try to have a people come in and find find where they are. Yeah. And so, um, how would people find out about about bioblitzes happening? And are there any lichen ones that might be coming up in the future? Well, you know that really is a hard question to answer because the bioblitzes that have been organized for um, for lichens in particular um, tend to be organized around a crisis point, and they tend to be organized by people who are focused on uh, saving a particular parcel of land. So it's difficult to anticipate where that might show up next. Mm -hmm. um, the city challenge that just happened uh, in uh, Halifax or just outside Halifax would be more of a biodiversity kind of activity okay. where a wide range of species would be noted, um, not just lichens, but, you know, all kinds of other things, mm -hmm. you know, birds and amphibians and mosses and that sort of thing. Oh yeah, so when we were out walking in here, we saw that big beautiful mat of the reindeer, different reindeer lichen yes, species, yeah. and I was wondering if lichen can be harmed easily by walking on them. Generally no, although 
if you get hundreds of people walking over them at the, in the same, very same spot, possibly yes. Lichens have a, a number of ways that they reproduce, and fragmentation is one of them. Um, so when you walk over a bunch of dry lichens and they go crunch, crunch under your feet, uh, most of the time you're not really hurting them, you're helping them to break into small pieces that the wind can then pick up and spread around because each of those little pieces has some of the fungus and some of the alga that make up that particular lichen. So occasional walking across them doesn't hurt them at all. Mm. The ones that are really, really sensitive and rare don't generally grow in those kinds of places where you would be walking on them. Okay, I just love knowing that. Yeah. It's so nice as like a species within the natural world to just think, I'm an animal in the woods, you know, I don't need to worry about hurting things going for a walk or... Well, again, if it becomes if it becomes a trail that somebody goes over all the time, yeah. then ultimately I suppose you could grind them down into nothing in that spot. Right. But you may have also freed them up to reestablish somewhere else. Yeah, well, that's really interesting, yeah. So yeah. so herds of humans might be harmful in, yes. in situations. Yes, but, <laughs> but don't worry about it if you're out there crunching them up. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, this is also reminding me of just all the things that um, I know we don't know about lichens yet. Yes. And uh, do you know what we don't know? <laughs> no, no, but we're finding out all the time. I mean, uh, the example is that we always thought that they were just uh, an alga and a fungus together. But finding out that there's almost very frequently a third component there, um, a basidiomycete or yeast, that that may be responsible for developing all the compounds that, that lichens create, um, we didn't know. And, and we're only just finding out what its function is. And we're, we're only just finding out some things about the way lichens function in the atmosphere. You know, there's still a whole lot we just don't know about them. Mm. And there's a lot we don't know about individual species, habitat pref preferences, um, because we're only just now looking. Yeah, and People have been studying lichens for a couple of hundred years, but most, m much of that study has been simply classifying them you know, um, arranging them in a, in a taxonomic sequence so that you can distinguish one species from another. But it wasn't until the late 1800s that somebody figured out that the lichens were more than one organism. Uh -huh. And then just recently, in the last five years, wow. we've found out that there's a third organism in there for most of them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's still just so much... We haven't got a handle on at all. Right. So They're really complicated little things, these lichens. Yeah, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking, well, yeah, so two things. I guess we, we have no idea if in the future there might be a fourth or fifth component. Well, we have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> and also um, I'm thinking about how the three different organisms make up the lichen and how do they find each other? How do they spread and find each other? I couldn't tell you about that third uh, organism because it's only just recently been discovered, so I have no idea where it, what its source is. Uh, lichens, as I said, have a, a number of ways to reproduce. Um, most of the lichen is made up of fungus, and many lichens, not all, have little fruiting bodies on them, little things that look like buttons. And 
those are spore-producing structures, and the spores are fungal spores. So in order for a fungal spore to become a lichen, it has to find an algal partner. And so the fungal spore goes off into the wild and finds an algal partner that suits it, and they make a lichen. So that's one way that they, they reproduce. And they can be carried by insects, those little fungal spores crawling oh. around on the surface uh. when the f- spores are released. They can be carried by birds oh. or by animals. Um, and <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So just kind of like the seeds of plants can be carried yes, on the wind or by animals. Right. Or and, and some insects that eat, eat lichens um, s- like to eat those fruiting bodies where the fungal spores are. Slugs in particular, but not just slugs like to graze on the on the surface and then when they um, defecate somewhere else mm-hmm. they will defecate those spores and if the proper algal partner happens to be lurking in the neighborhood then they'll make another lichen so they get they get transported around quite quite easily but finding that algal partner is tricky. So some of the lichens that we have that are at risk are ones that only reproduce that way. Um, And they also don't fragment easily because they tend to be rather heavy and thick. If you think of of the blue felt lichen, it's quite a thick lichen. So bits of that breaking off aren't going to go very far. Mm. But its fungal spores can. And so, but it still has to find that algal partner that it wants to make another one. There are two other ways that lichens reproduce that are much easier to to get around. Um, And and those both involve little bits of the lichen that break off that have algae and fungus in them. Um, One of them looks a little bit like powder and it sometimes is along the edges or on the surface of the lichen. And they're little balls of, of fungal hairs around an, uh, an algal cell or two. And if those brush off in the wind or against an animal or a branch or something else that hits it or carries it off or eats it, both partners are there, huh. just like with fragmentation. Wow. So, a, so even if an animal eats it, they're both still together and yes. they can yep. carry on on the other, yeah, other end? Yep. <laughs> wow. And then the third way is um, little pegs that stick up off the surface of the lichen. And these all have their own names, but I won't complicate things mm-hmm. by mentioning Don't them. Don't confuse no. us <laughs> further. <laughs> but these little pegs um, have both the fungus and the algae in them, and they'll break off and also be carried by wind or by something brushing against it or by being eaten by something or by you know being picked up by birds or insects. Hmm. So the most most successful at reproducing have more than one way to reproduce and those are the more common ones i see okay and when you talk about um algae lurking around how (laughs) does how does it lurk where does it lurk (laughs) well it lurks on any number of surfaces um many of the algae uh algal species that that are useful for lichenizing are already existing free living out in the in the wild. They exist on bark or on rock surfaces or maybe even uh, on bryophytes. I don't, I'm not certain, but yes, I think they are. And you sometimes see them. They're a little bit like a a slime. Hmm. Um, 
And so they're out there just waiting for, well, who knows what they're doing, but, but when the, the lichen spore goes out looking for a partner, um, there are any number of algae that are out there that they can hook up with, but they only hook up with the one that'll make that lichen. Right, so they might be like flying, floating by various algal yes and and ignoring them yes (laughs) then they find each other and they attach somehow and then a lichen is created yeah yep the spore lands on the on the uh, algae and then starts to uh, uh, attach itself to it and um little fungal hairs will kind of envelop it and penetrate the algal cells and it's it's all a very complicated process there are many 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 fungal species that can lichenize and only a few algal species that they can f- make a lichen with. Ah, So tell me if I have this right then. When you look at a lichen, what you're seeing, like the shape, the form of the lichen, is the, f- the fungal part. Yes. And then the algae is what is doing the photosynthesizing, giving it its food, but that um, can give it its color? Yes and no. Okay. Um, I wouldn't say that it does give it its color, uh, I think the compounds that are made up when the lichen gets together um, help to give it its color. Okay. Uh, There are some compounds that we know protect the lichen, the algae, from uh, ultraviolet light. Hmm. So some of the lichens, like some of the the osmic acid, will will do that. Some of the orange lichens that you see have a have a, a compound in them that protects it from UV lights, and that's all part of the fungal component uh, and it protects the algae from being killed by too much exposure wow the way they cooperate is just unbelievable I know I know (laughs) (laughs) is there anything else that you would just like to tell people about who are interested in in forests and in lichens well um, you have to be you have to be willing to look at small things if you want to really look at lichens and learn to distinguish them even without learning their names or learning what species they are just even appreciating the multiplicity of of species that uh, that are out there mm-hmm. it's really helpful if you are willing to stop and look and take time and focus on small things preferably with a hand lens mm-hmm. so that you can appreciate their beauty but because they are so small, it's really easy to overlook them. Mm. So I would say they're a really useful way to learn to slow down and appreciate the little things. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's lovely. These are cute things. Those are mushrooms. Those are, are fun- fungi. Yeah. Oh, and here's Protocanaria pezozoides. Huh? All over the base of this tree. That's a different looking one to me. It's kind of like moldy mud or something. Oh, it looks like vomit. Vomit? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the other, <laughs> that, that one I couldn't remember the Latin name of. I saw the common name was fairy puke. Yes. Yes, cute. that's the Tobias biomyces. This is like the ultimate scavenger hunt. Oh, it is. It's wonderful. I mean, it's just like a treasure hunt every single time. I so loved learning more about lichens. I was particularly fascinated that the sometimes third component, yeast, was only discovered a few years ago. 
and also that walking on lichens isn't so harmful and in moderation can even help them spread. I have uh, attached some photos from this episode of the lichens we saw and our, our little journey through the forest that day on the Facebook page. And to see that, go to facebook.com forward slash shared ground podcast. Thank you for listening to Shared Ground. Until next time, fellow humans. Thank you.